Decatur of Decatur, Illinois, attended Carleton College and in 1963 as a junior. He spent a semester in Mississippi and this was an experience in a different culture that led to his questioning what had been taught about United States history. As a teacher, oh, he then went on, I should say, to earn a PhD uh, in sociology from Harvard U University. He has been a teacher and he has taught race relationship race relations for 20 years at the University of Vermont. Previously, he taught at predominantly black Tugelo College in Mississippi. His gripping retelling of American history as it should and could be taught, lies my, my teacher told me, I think that's known to many of you, has sold more than one million copies and continues to inspire teachers to get students to challenge rather than memorize their textbooks. His other publications include um, many, and I'll just mention a few of those. Mississippi Culture and Change, which, was, which he co-authored, and that won the Lillian Smith Award for Best Southern Nonfiction, but was rejected for public school text by the state of Mississippi, leading to a path-breaking First Amendment lawsuit, uh, Lowen et al. versus Turnipseed et al. And this is really interesting because the ruling that came down from that ruled that the authors were denied their right to free speech and press. His other publications include the Mississippi Chinese, um, Between Black and White, Social Change in the Classroom, The Truth About Col Columbus, and Lies Across America and Sundown Towns. So as you can see, he has a distinguished career there. He has also been an expert witness in more than 50 civil rights, voting rights, and employment cases. His awards include the first annual Spivak Award of the American Sociological Society. His book, um, Lies My Father Told Me, Teacher, sorry, keeps it doing that, <laughs> won the, I don't know where that comes from, you know. I don't know, bear with me, won the American Book Award and the Oliver Cromwell Cox Award for Distinguished Anti-Racist Scholarship. He is also a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians. Join me in welcoming James Lowell. I do have issues with dad. Um, <laughs> also, there were some of you giggling at the name of my lawsuit, Lowen et al. versus Turnipseed et al. I want you to know that there are people in Mississippi named Turnipseed. And in fact, that's one of the two reasons why we made him the lead defendant. <laughs> Think about it. It was a joke, but only this table laughed. Uh, it, it turns out that, uh, I, well, I thought that deep into the 21st century, when legal scholars are kind of bored with, you know, Brown v. Board and Plessy v. for turnip seed, what's this? Uh, but it turns out I denied myself my own 15 seconds of fame because nobody knows the lawsuit is Lowen. 
It's all known as turnip seed. Um, and it is a, it, it's actually considered the most pathbreaking First Amendment lawsuit in the history of the country because it's the most affirmative one ever, ever to have been won. Well, anyway, um, I'm, you can't see anything up here. You can't see your notes. This is a microphone. That's my water glass, but that's about it. Okay. Um, I, I've got a couple of announcements. First of all, I'm doing two workshops tomorrow. I say this because it wasn't in the preliminary program, and I'm going by my preliminary program, so, uh, but I am going to go do them. And so if you want to come by and come to either of them, uh, you can look it up in the addendum and stuff like that. And there will, I was going to illustrate my talk tonight, but my illustrations are in the form of um, overheads. And they couldn't find any kerosene for the overhead projector. <laughs> But they were going to have it by tomorrow morning, so I will show the pictures tomorrow morning that you're going to miss tonight. Uh, I am going to put this stuff on PowerPoint, but actually pictures look better before they get pixelated and unpixelated, and so that's why I had them on and still have them on um, overheads. A couple of other announcements. First of all, if you want to take flash photos, take them in the next minute or so. Every time a flash goes off, I lose another synapse, and I don't have any to burn at my age, so that would be good. Um, I want to stress that the book that I wrote that's particularly relevant to you folks is, of course, Lies Across America, What Our Historic Sites Get Wrong. And I think that's why you guys had me be here. But I have been worrying about being here. Usually I don't worry about when I go places. Um, but the reason I've been, I've been preparing this talk for a long time, and the reason I've been worrying about it is because, of course, after-dinner talks are supposed to be funny. Um, but, you know, I've got a lot of serious things to say. And so I'm going to try to do a little of each um, I have a title for my talk, and the title is Getting It Right. You wouldn't know this because it's not in the program. Matter of fact, I'm not in the program, just the banquet. So I thought that was cool. <laughs> because it was good. I mean, it was tasty, and I haven't even had dessert yet, and I t told folks to save it for me. Um, so it won't be a washout, even if I'm not funny. But I am uh, going to be both serious and funny. Um, uh, as Ken mentioned, uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me, actually I think Lies My Teacher Told Me is the best-selling book by a living sociologist. There are sociologists who have done better. Thank you. It, it keeps on selling. There are sociologists who have done better, but they are dead. You can't get them to speak to you. Um, so I'm an expert because of that book. I actually am an expert on what we learn and what we don't learn in K-12 about American history. And of course, the people who graduated K-12 are by definition the people who come or even who don't come to your historic sites. And so I wanna tell you that um, it's a little scary because uh, five out of six of them never take a course in history after they leave high school. Uh, across the country, not in every district, but across the country, history, U.S. history, is the least liked subject in high school. And partly for that reason, students try not to take it in college. And most of them succeed, including some people who go on then to teach it. <laughs> That's actually true. Fifteen percent of all teachers across this country who teach American history never had one course on it, in it in college. 
Now, that's not true in any other subject. You know, you can't, you can't even graduate from college without require, the one required course in English. You can't imagine a math teacher in high school who didn't even have one course in it in college, but this is true for 15% of all of the uh, teachers of history across the country. It's also true that 15% of all the teachers of uh, American history across the country are coaches in, many, in major sports. It may be the same people. Uh, certainly, I sometimes hold up this book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, and say the subtitle could have been Revenge Against Coach DeMolin. Because <laughs> he was my history teacher. Um, this is a particular problem, incidentally, in Oklahoma and Texas. And uh, I was once the commencement speaker, I mean, not commencement, um, what was it called? I don't know, they have a, a, uh, every semester they have a major, one major speech, uh, and they call it something else that starts with C. Well, I'm blanking on it. Con thank you. Say it loud. Yes, did you all hear that? And so the whole, the whole faculty showed up in their academic regalia, and it was quite a crowd. Uh, this was at Texas A&M Commerce. And uh, I asked this audience, how many of you had a high school history teacher whose first name was Coach? And <laughs> And applause ricocheted throughout the auditorium, and 60% raised their hand. So that was an all-time high. And Texas isn't that far from Oklahoma, so I suspect it's a problem in this state as well. Well, as a result of this, um, students in, high, in college don't know much history. And I know because I spent many, many years both at Tougaloo College in Mississippi and then at the University of Vermont um, trying to teach them. I was actually in sociology, but the two feel, I mean, you know, the world doesn't come divided into disciplines. Uh, so in my race relations class at the University of Vermont, I gave them a, a quiz. I always give my students a quiz on the first day of class. And in fact, actually, the quiz I'm about to describe to you, some of the funny questions on it, and some of them are funny, are at my website. And so you might want to take it yourself. You will probably fail this quiz, but you will have more fun failing my quiz than passing most other quizzes. Um, <clears throat> and if you want to get to my website, you just type James W. Lowen with quotes rotation around it into Google, and it'll, my website comes up first the last time I tried it. Uh, you can also find stuff there about sundown towns and, and, and really about what I'm doing in general, and that would, be, that would be fine. And you can email me through my website, especially through the sundown town part, if you want, and give me feedback on um, uh, tonight or whatever you want to tell me. But anyway, uh, I was teaching a class at the University of Vermont, uh, helpfully titled Lies My Teacher Told Me, so I could get my book done. Um, and it was a class of juniors and seniors, majors in so social sciences and in education. And I gave them this quiz on the first day of class. And I need to tell you that they took it dead seriously. Um, indeed, some of them were outraged. How can you give us a quiz on the first day of class? How much of our grade is based on this? I told them 70%. And, and the question I'm about to tell you wasn't even a funny one or a tricky one. I asked, the war in Vietnam was fought between blank and blank, okay? And 22% of my students, junior and senior, social science and education majors, 22% of them replied, the war in Vietnam was fought between North and South Korea. Okay, now for those of you who didn't say oh, it was fought between North and South Vietnam, or more accurately, between the United States and Vietnam. So two days later when class resumed, I was outraged at this 22%. How could you put this? Well, they pointed out, first of all, that they had not been born when the war in Vietnam ended, which is, of course, true, and only one more way of showing me that I was 96 years old and they were not. Um, 
They also pointed out that their high school American history course dwindled to a close shortly after World War II. Right? And a lot of you are nodding, yours did too. Um, it's a problem. Incidentally, one student demanded half credit for getting North and South correct. Uh, I said, what if you'd said North and South Dakota? <laughs> well, so these are the people who come to your sites. I hope I have your attention. Okay. Um, there's a famous quote, no one ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of the American people. Actually, that's not quite what Mencken said, but it'll do for government work. Okay. Um, and I have collected a number of questions that Americans have asked at historic sites, and I thought you'd enjoy them. I actually collected them pretty much in person from NPS people and others, and then I went on the web about two weeks ago and found most of them up there, but I actually know they're genuine because I collected them, some of them before there was a web, so they must be true, right? Um, but here's one we get in DC. Can the wife of the unknown soldier be buried alongside him? Some of the folks are just starting to laugh. It, it takes a... <laughs> Here's another one. You know, you see the Washington Monument, and it's got that huge circle of flags all the way around it, you know? Um, and here's the question. I've got to get it right. How did they get all the flags to blow in the same direction? I mean, the National Park Service is really good. All right. Here's another one. This is a question we get asked all through the Southeast. How come so many Civil War battles were fought in parks? And at Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, they get this question. How much of the cave is underground? <laughs> at, at Canyon de Chez in the Southwest, are there any undiscovered ruins in the park? <laughs> we'll give that one a minute. <laughs> and finally, at Yellowstone, and probably you've heard this one, but it really does get asked, um, where do you keep the animals at night? Well, with a public like that, you guys have a tough job, all right? Um, not only do you have to educate the public, you also have to be marketing yourself to the public. I'm very aware of that. Uh, and you're selling yourself to a, the very community that sometimes uh, you're trying to get the history right of, and they don't want you to get the history right. And I'm speaking seriously now. Um, but you are where we Americans go to learn history. We didn't learn it in high school. Trust me. And we don't take it in college. So you need to get it right. And so I'm going to talk about getting it right in three areas. I'm going to start with getting it right begins with the language, and I'm talking about Native Americans. Then I'm going to talk about getting it right about the Civil War, and I'm going to do that because we are right now at the 150th or the sesquicentennial anniversary of secession uh, this Christmas Eve, and next year we move into the sesquicentennial of the Civil War, and we've been getting it wrong for at least the last hundred of those years, and it's time to get it right. And finally, we need to get it right about the nadir, the nadir of race relations. And some of you don't even know what that is, and you can't get it right if you don't know what it is. So I'm going to talk about those three things, okay? Um, oh, I have this wonderful slide that I'm going to show tomorrow for anybody who comes to either one of my workshops. 
because it's not here right now. I'm going to describe it. It is the, um, the welcome marker, historical marker, allegedly historical marker, I should say, that my home state of Illinois supplies to you when you enter Illinois, not on an interstate, but on a regular highway. Uh, anywhere, I think. I happen to see it entering from Indiana in eastern Illinois. It's different in different parts of the state a little bit. but, And it starts right off, first of all, it says, the title is, Thy Wondrous Story, Illinois. And you may notice how I pronounced that. I'll do it again. Thy Wondrous Story. Because Illinois misspells wondrous. It is actually wondrous. But anyway, besides, which says something about the uh, quality of the marker right there. Furthermore, that's the heading for the historical marker. Thy wonder, I feel like I have to put my hand over my heart if it's all right. <laughs> Thy wondrous story, Illinois. What is this, the King James Version of Illinois history? I mean, I grew up in Illinois. I think it's just fine. But I've got to say, we don't usually call it thy. Um, how about welcome to Illinois or Illinois history or something like that, you know, something a little bit neutral. Uh, then it goes on to say something like, um, in 1673, uh, Father Jacques Marquette and somebody else, Joliet, uh, Louis Joliet, uh, paddled down the Illinois River. And there's some funny things that happen visually that I can't tell you, but I'll show you tomorrow if you come to my workshop. But um, you don't have to. But anyway, um, <laughs> Is there anybody left out? I mean, that's the beginning. Well, of course there's somebody left out, right? There's a, a few people who lived in Illinois for some thousands of years. Uh, so we don't want to leave those folks out. So don't leave them out and let, if you can help it at your site. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about American Indians or Native Americans. Um, one way to have, well, there's some suspect words, or I should say suspect words. Um, that we have on historical markers and in our interpretation all across the country. The very first one maybe is discover. And there's a problem here. Let me read you. In, in Lies Across America, I, I pick on at least one uh, historical site in every state, and um, sometimes more than one. Uh, and this is the one that I pick on using the word discover. Uh, there's historical markers all across the US using the term discover, by which, of course, we mean the first white person to see it, right? And it really won't do. And the, the silliest one of them all is in eastern Oregon. It's on the Interstate 84, just south of LeGrand. And it says, quote, the Wilson Price Hunt Astoria expedition, after failing to find a route through the Snake River Canyon, obtained the guidance of a Shoshone Indian and discovered the route over the Blue Mountains. <laughs> and it's interesting. I mean, at least they do admit, I mean, there's a Native American, a Shoshone, right there, so that's good. Um, but otherwise, um, and of course, we, we then, our history textbooks talk about Columbus discovering America, which he did in exactly the same sense that about 20 years ago, I discovered oregano. <laughs> well, I mean, oregano is very good, and I didn't know about it. Um, besides discover, um, there's all kinds of problems with the names that we use to speak of Native Americans. Um, and the, my entry, I guess I only have one, for Arizona uh, talks about that in this book. Um, the, the most hilarious, as far as I can tell, uh, the Pima Indians, P-I-M-A, or Pimas in the plural, apparently that word means in their language 
I don't know. And that is what they said when a Spanish explorer asked them, what is, the, what is your group called? And they said, I can't understand you. I don't know what you're saying. Pima. So now they are the Pima Indians. <laughs> it's very sad. Um, I think many of you know this problem. I mean, for instance, the, the term Eskimo, um, which is now accepted by some Inuit groups in most, or many Native American groups call themselves by a name that really means we the people, we the real people, you know, we're the, we the in-group kind of. And Inuit means we the people. But Eskimo means those cruddy people over there who eat their fish raw. And it's the term by the Cree to describe the Eskimo, I mean to describe the Inuit, excuse me. Um, and that's true for Sioux, as opposed to Lakota, Dakota, etc. cetera. Uh, it's true for many of the uh, names by which we, by which we name uh, Native people. Besides the names, there's all kinds of other problematic terms. Uh, one of them is massacre. Uh, oh, and the other, I was only going to show about four slides, and this other one I also have to describe. Um, the, uh, I have a, a picture of the most wrong, I guess that's grammatical, the most wrong historical marker in the entire US. Uh, I attempted to read all of the state historical markers for this book, Lies Across America. I must be a glutton for punishment, huh, after first reading 18 US history high school textbooks for this book. I'm the only American, incidentally, ever to have read 18 high school America history textbooks. That was a near-death experience. <laughs> but of them all, perhaps the most beautiful of, the, of all the markers, uh, perhaps the most beautiful, and the most beautiful marker in the book anyway, is a marker in southern Idaho, in Almo, Idaho, a small town, um, that refers to, quote, a most horrible Indian massacre. Uh, I have it almost memorized. Let's see if I can do it. Almost 300 emigrants westbound in their little wagon train. Only five escaped. Uh, this happened in 1861, and so on, and it's all described here. Why is it the most... Uh, Wrong. Well, it turns out that 30 were not, three were not, it never happened at all. All right? No massacre. Nothing much happened in 1861 in southern Idaho. Um, I use this marker to introduce the term historiography. And some of you, I know, are not familiar with that term. So I, I, I want you to be familiar with it. So let me define it for you. I know a lot of you do know it. Historiography means the study of history put most simply, but not in the sense of, oh, geez, I'm way behind. I got to do historiography this weekend, uh, but rather the study of the writing of history. Why is history written this way and not that way? Who wrote this historical marker or who wrote this museum interpretation? When was this interpretation codified? 1971 or whatever. So this historical marker, uh, this uh, massacre in southern Idaho, every site, your site, tells at least two, the story of at least two eras. It's the story of what it's about, in this case, 1861, this alleged massacre, and it's the story about when it went up, in this case, 1928, as I remember. We'll see tomorrow. Um, in this case, nothing happened in 1861, so this historical marker is only a tale of 1928, when it was put up by S&D of Idaho pioneers, sons and daughters of Idaho pioneers. So the State Historical Society needs to, who supplied me with the picture, incidentally, they need to take this marker and put it in their historical mark, uh, museum with a big label saying, 
uh, artifact of 1928 and then explaining what it teaches us. And what it teaches us, of course, is that a bunch of white folks in southern Idaho in 1928, in the middle of the nadir of race relations, which we'll get to shortly, will believe anything about a bunch of savage Indians without any uh, historical justification whatsoever. Okay? The Historical Museum has not offered to um, take this item, although they have been trying to get Almo to take it down. Almo won't take it down because it's the biggest thing that ever happened in Almo, even though it never happened. <laughs> well, okay. So we have all kinds of problems with language dealing with native people. Uh, another one, besides massacre, we, we have this question. On, in terms of historical sites, how many dead white people does it take before you have a massacre in terms of historical markers and stuff? What do you think? What's the right answer? Two. Two is not a bad number. It turns out there's a historical marker in Florida and another one in Pennsylvania for the massacre of exactly half of that many. Right? But you haven't been paying attention. How many does it take to have a sign about a massacre? None in southern Idaho, right? Yeah. Then we have the question, how many dead American Indians does it take to have a massacre? And the answer until recently was, we don't know. We've never killed enough of them. Meaning that even in places like Horseshoe Creek in Alabama or um, Wounded Knee in South Dakota, they're called battles even though they were massacres. Uh, but I have to tell you, about 20 years ago, somebody in South Dakota, 15 maybe, somebody in South Dakota fixed that because the sign had said, battle at Wounded Knee. And South Dakota uses wood uh, markers that have been routed, and then they're painted green, and, they're, and the, the routed V-shaped thing is done in gold. And so some passerby, we don't know if he or she is Lakota or just a Lakota sympathizer, carefully sawed out on both sides the part that said, uh, at the top, that said battle, and replaced it perfectly with wood that says massacre. And South Dakota has left it alone because it's now uh, more accurate. Okay. Well, all right, besides these problematic words, there's all kinds of other problems with Native American history, but I'm, I'm just going to hint at, at the, that whole issue by, by what I've said so far. Uh, the second thing I want to talk about getting it right has to do with the Civil War. And um, I have to say on behalf of AASLH that you guys still have a few copies. They've sold out of most of my books, but they still have a few copies of my new book, which just came out two weeks ago, um, maybe four weeks ago now, The, Conf the Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader, with a flag that may be familiar to you. Um, why did I get this book out? Well, I think I want to demonstrate it before you right now. I want to ask you all a question. Um, we're going to do a referendum, okay? And my question is this. Why did the South secede? Okay? On Christmas Eve, 150 years ago, South Carolina seceded from the Union, followed by 10 other states. If I had enough time, I would ask you why. And I would get, I always get, I've asked over 3,000 people across the U.S. in the last three years, maybe closer to 10,000. And I've asked all kinds of teacher groups. I always get four answers. Here are the four answers, and I would get them from you, because they are the only four answers anybody ever gives, and you would give them. Um, the South seceded over slavery. The South seceded for states' rights. The South seceded because of the election of Lincoln. The South seceded over tariffs and taxes, or issues about tariffs and taxes. I now want you to vote, okay? 
And this is not Chicago, you can only vote once. Okay? I mean, you may think it's kind of number two and maybe a little number four. Choose one, okay? And can I get your agreement on one more thing? Don't abstain. Go ahead and vote. Do I have an amen on that? Amen. Okay. Now, can we have a little more house lights or something so we can see hands if they go up? I don't know how to do this. Can the house lights go up a little? Or the whatever these are, go down a little? Well, put your hands up really high. And if anybody knows where the electricity is, that'd be good. Okay. Ah, oh, thank you. Are you ready to vote? I'm going to remind you of the four alternatives. Slavery, states' rights, the election of Lincoln, tariffs and taxes, or issues about tariffs and taxes, okay? The South Carolina and the other states seceded over slavery. Hands up. Now look around. I'm seeing very, very few hands. Over states' rights. Look around. What is that? 60%? It's certainly over half. The South seceded because of the election of Lincoln. Uh, about twice as many as slavery, like about 10 maybe. The South seceded because of tariffs and taxes. Well, maybe twice as many as for Lincoln, but far fewer than states' rights. People who didn't actually vote, put your hands up. <laughs> One courageous person. I don't think that's true. I think some of the rest of you still didn't put your, well, anyway. Okay. You remember the, how it came out? Okay. Slavery won a clear majority. In fact, we didn't see very many hands for any of the alternatives, actually. Well, the, the next question I might ask is, what do we do next? States' rights won it. Did I misspeak? Thank you for correcting me. States' rights won for sure. Okay. Um, like lies my father told me, we're, it's up here. There's something going on up here. All right. So what do we do next? And incidentally, this is a good way to teach it. If you're a teacher or if you're talking to a museum group uh, and you're trying to get it right, and this is not just a southern issue, incidentally. I mean, the Civil War affected the whole country. You know, It affected the heck out of Indian territory where we now are, uh, of course. Uh, but it, it also, in, in uh, Lies Across America, I discussed Civil War monuments and what's wrong with them. And it is in my entry for Montana. Think about it. In fact, it's my, in my discussion of a beautiful big fountain put up by the United Daughters of the Confederacy to our beloved Confederate dead in Helena, Montana in 1915. Now you might say, geez, you know, I never knew that the Confederacy held Montana. Um, and in fact, the Confederacy didn't. Um, neither did the U.S. In fact, the guy named uh, George Armstrong Custer had, as we learned before lunch today, if we didn't already know it, had a little Indian trouble in Montana some 15 years after the Civil War started. But that didn't stop the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and, and there's something wrong with these monuments, and so that's a, an essay you might want to look at. All right. So what do we do next? Do we go by majority rules? At least 65% put up their hand for um, states' rights. What do we need? Speak up, somebody. Evidence, right? We need to know. And, and if, I, if I had more time, I would ask you, and I do this with groups of teachers, and eventually somebody will say, well, newspapers. And I'll say, I mean, I could say, could you be more vague? Uh, <laughs> what I do say is, 
Yeah, right, like maybe the Portland Oregonian from 1992, and they'll say, no, no, newspapers from the time, and we'll talk about primary sources, and we'll say newspapers from Charleston, South Carolina. Well, yeah, that makes sense, okay? And then somebody eventually will say, well, didn't South Carolina secede by convention? Which it did, that's true. Most of the, not all, but most of the states did. And didn't the convention say why they were seceding? And yes, they did. In fact, they published the following document on Christmas Eve, 150 years ago, this coming Christmas. It's titled, Declaration of the Immediate Causes Which Induce and Justify the Secession of South Carolina from the Federal Union. Reading from this book I just edited. Um, what do they say? Well, they say various things, but they, they, they have a kind of bogus history of the, of the U.S. that starts off for about two pages, but then they get into why they are seceding, and here's what they say. I'm going to quote. We assert that 14 of the states have deliberately refused for years past to fulfill their constitutional obligations, and we refer to their own statutes for the proof. Now, constitutional obligations sounds a little vague, doesn't it? But they go right on to tell us exactly what they mean. The Constitution of the United States, in its fourth article, provides as follows, quote, no person held to service in one state under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. Well, that is, of course, the what? The Fugitive Slave Clause in the Constitution. It's beginning to sound like that S word, slavery, might have something to do with this. All right? And then they go on to talk about states' rights, and they are outraged at states' rights. So that vast majority of you that said states' rights, you're right. If by that you meant the South didn't like states' rights, that's not what you meant. All right? You were actually 180 degrees wrong on this. All right? And let me go on to prove it to you. I'm going to read you. The states of Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, they go ahead and read it, they name a bunch of them, New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Iowa, have enacted laws which either nullify the acts of Congress or render useless any attempt to execute them. In many of these states, the fugitive is discharged from the service or labor claim, blah, blah, blah. They are upset with the states for interfering in various modest ways with the operation of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which was by... Uh, the most, by far the most draconian federal act passed up until the, the Civil War. And they're in favor of this draconian federal act. Um, I'll just get mentioned one little way that Pennsylvania tries to interfere. Pennsylvania doesn't like this. They say, we're trying to run a free state. We don't want to be complicit in recapturing your slaves. But we understand we can't nullify. We understand we can't secede. But you know what? Now, under this act, if... Um, say this gentleman, uh, whose name I've forgotten, but we had a good talk about Vermont. Dave. Dave. I assert, we're in Altoona, Pennsylvania. That's in southern Pennsylvania. I assert Dave is, Dave is African-American. That's at least as true as the fact that we're in Altoona. Um, and I assert that <laughs> Dave is my slave, and I'm from Baltimore. And Dave is nobody's slave. Dave has lived his whole life in Altoona. But Dave is unfortunately in the next town over, which actually I was in last year. And uh, he doesn't know anybody in that town. He's buying something. Under this act, Dave's best move is to make a bolt for the door because his goose is cooked under this act, among other things. He can't testify against me in federal court. So if I say he's my slave, he can't say nothing. Uh, furthermore, um, the judge under this court gets paid by the federal government the equivalent of about $300 if he finds for me and $150 by the federal government if he finds for Dave. So there's a bribe built right into the act for the judge to find for me. 
So Dave makes a bolt for the door. Well, under this law, all of you all just sitting there having finishing your dessert are required to help me catch him. And if any of you are JPs or deputy sheriffs or otherwise law enforcement people, you're required to help me hold him and even to go after him. And Pennsylvania passes the following law. They say, we understand that we can't do anything about this, but you know, we do have power over when we pay our state police and our sheriffs and stuff. So you law enforcement people, you do what you have to under this act, but we're not paying you for that time. South Carolina's outraged at this. South Carolina's outraged at New York because New York no longer allows what's called slavery transit. This is the practice by which, for instance, rich folks from South Carolina, they don't want to spend August in, in uh, uh, Charleston, and actually having spent part of last August in Charleston, I'm with them on that. Uh, they'd rather go to the Hamptons or they'd rather see some Broadway plays. And, but they don't want to do their own cooking, so they bring their slave along to cook. And New York State says, no, you can't do that anymore. We're trying to run a free state. If you bring slaves into New York, they become free. South Carolina is outraged at this, and they say so. They're outraged at New England because New England lets blacks vote. Now, who voted in America was a state's right until the 15th Amendment passes, two whole eras later uh, during Reconstruction. Right? So it's none of South Carolina's business who New Hampshire lets vote, but they, they're outraged at it, and they say so. So this is the number one reason they cite for leaving the union because of states' rights in exactly the opposite way from which you all meant it, though, all right? Now, this, think about this. Here we are, incidentally, 60 to 75% of teachers get this wrong. A higher percentage of, and plus the folks who said tariffs and taxes, which was a big, the second biggest group, that's totally wrong, too. There's nothing in here about tariffs and taxes. Why would there be? South Carolina helped write the Tariff Act of 1853 that we were operating under under the time. They were happy with it, all right? Now, those few of you who answered the election of Lincoln, that's not wrong. It's not an underlying cause. It's just a trigger. And in fact, they, they do cite it. But the reason they're upset by the election of Lincoln, as they say, is because he's anti-slavery. So it all comes back to slavery. But if you said the election of Lincoln, give yourself a, a silver star anyway. But the rest of you don't get, don't get no star, all right? <laughs> And this is terrible because we have gone 150 years since then and we're getting it wrong. Well, I want to just uh, submit to you that the reason we're getting it wrong is because we haven't gotten it right about the nadir. And I'm now going to get it right, damn it, about the nadir right in front of your very eyes. The nadir of race relations is the period from 1890 to 1940. It's about a half a century. Now, there's more than one way to periodify American history, but I submit to you the nadir of race relations is far more important than the stupid ways we do periodify it, such as the gay 90s or the roaring 20s, right? Gay 90s, you know, we're not talking about homosexual rights here. The gay 90s weren't so gay. I mean, they, it was the second worst agri uh, economic depression in the history of the country. It was the worst labor violence, and it was by far the worst period of racism in the history of the country. Racism goes to its all-time high between 1890 and 1940. Now, that's a, a heck of a sentence to try to handle in an after-dinner speech, and I, I would refer you to um, three different places I've been writing about it recently. My book, Teaching What Really Happened, chapter 10 is The Nader. Teachers aren't teaching the Nader because they don't even know about it, of course. Uh, there's a chapter in here, this Confederate book, about what the neo this is called the Confederate and Neo-Confederate reader, about what the Neo-Confederates, that is, they're no longer the original Confederates, it's a new generation, what they say between 1890 and 1940 and how it differs. 
and that's why we're matching it right now. What do they say between 1890 and 1940? Well, during this era, the Civil War changes names. Across the South, and to some extent across the US, it becomes the war between the states. You've heard that. Not one person ever called it that while it was going on. While it was going on, it was called the Civil War, duh. Or it was called the Rebellion or the Great Rebellion, right? hence rebel. Uh, this is a creation of, a, of this later period. Well, it starts earlier than that, but it gets established during the Nader. Right? And during the Nader is when the neo-Confederates float this lie that the South seceded for states' rights. It's much nicer. We don't want to defend slavery anymore. Slavery is passe. Okay? White supremacy is not, and this is a lie in the service of white supremacy. So if your historic site, even if it's in Helena, Montana, is asserting that the Civil War was about states' rights, stop it when you get home. All right? That's got to change. And, and please do get my book. This is the only book of mine ever, ever flogged, darn it, uh, because we've got to fix this. It's been 150 years. It's time to get it right. Okay? Now, we did get it right at the time. And I want to submit to you that you all know that in the back of your mind if you think of Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural, which is the most profound statement about race relations ever uttered by any American president. And so I'm going to give you a homework assignment. If you have paid the incredible fee, I mean, if you happen to be on the internet at this hotel, <laughs> never mind, um, go home and Google the second inaugural and read it out loud to yourself. Um, it's, the mo it's amazing. Presidents don't talk in sentences like that nowadays because they think we're stupider. We aren't that stupid, but that's what they think. Um, but just read what, at one point, he makes the following statement. I'm going to slightly misphrase him because I want to fill in a uh, pronoun. He, he says, slightly misphrased, all knew that slavery was somehow the cause of this great conflict. Now, he is not saying that to persuade anybody of anything because all did know it at the time. He's simply saying it to say, now I'm going to switch gears and we're going to talk about slavery for a little while and race relations. And he goes on to say some amazing things about that subject. So if you think about that, you realize that in 1865, when he made that speech, all did know that slavery was the cause of the conflict. But by 2010, or between 1890 and 1940, so what I'm saying is we have two legacies of the nadir to us today. The first legacy is distorted history about secession, about the Civil War, and about many, many other things, from U.S. Grant to Woodrow Wilson to Christopher Columbus. You might say, Lowen, Christopher Columbus was 1492. What's that got to do with the Nader? Well, our view of Christopher Columbus comes out of 1892, largely. And that's right in the middle of the Nader. And that's when he got set in the textbooks the way he is set today, uh, with slight changes that I don't have time to go into right now. So in many ways, then, the dead hand of the Nader is gripping our necks right in this room, because that's why you got it wrong. All right, so the Nader distorts our past. It distorts our view of the past. It distorts how we teach it at our historic sites. And it's got to stop. And the second thing that the Nader did to us is, the Nader is the era that created sundown towns. And so I wrote that book, and they've got a few copies for sale. Um, sundown towns, as you may, may know or may not know, are towns that for decades were, and some of them still are, all white on purpose. They get their title from uh, the fact that uh, some of them, uh, perhaps Norman, for instance, which was a sundown, Norman, Oklahoma, I'm talking about where the university is, uh, which was a sundown town for many years after driving out its black population in about 1912. Um, Norman is said to have had, I'm not sure if it did, a, town at the, a sign at the edge of town saying, 
quote, nigger, don't let the sun go down on you in Norman. Okay, certainly Manitowoc, Wisconsin had such a sign. Certainly Hawthorne, California, a suburb of Los Angeles had such a sign. Certainly Pekin, Illinois, near Peoria, town of about 35,000 had such a sign. You didn't have to have the sign though to be a sundown town. You just had to have the policy, formal or informal. And some entire counties still have this policy as we speak today. I was in a sundown county last year in Illinois where not one black family lives and it's not prudent for any to live there. All right, and many of you come from sundown towns. Many of your sites, your historic sites are in sundown towns. Uh, and I'm gonna be talking about this in, in actually both of my workshops tomorrow, the one dealing with local history and also the one dealing with controversial issues. If that's true, whether it's a suburb or an independent city, for gosh sakes, deal with it. That is at your site. Treat it, don't let it just go swept under the rug. That will help us get over it. Every sun, when I started to write the book Sundown Towns, I, I grew up in Decatur, Illinois, right in the center of Illinois. I knew I was gonna do more research in Illinois than in any other single state. I thought I would come upon maybe 10 of them in Illinois and maybe 50 across the country. Not so, I had the, the shades lifted from my eyes. Uh, I am now at a count of 504 sundown towns in Illinois alone, which is 70% of all the towns that there are in Illinois. A similar percentage occurred in Oregon, in Indiana, and in many other northern states, also in some quasi-southern areas. It's not, there are only three in Mississippi. I spent years in Mississippi, so I tried to find every sundown town I could. But in the non-south-south, like for instance, Appalachia or the Ozarks, there's lot, or the outside of Florida, there's lots of sundown towns. So there's sundown towns everywhere you go just about, and, um, and we've got to root them all out. Every sundown town in America needs to take three steps. It's the low one three-step program, saves you nine steps over AA. <laughs> Admit it, we did this. And some sundown towns have done this, uh, including some historical museums, two at least that I can tell you about, and Will Tamal. We did this. Two, apologize. We did this and it was wrong and we're sorry. And third, and we don't do it anymore. And that third statement needs to have some teeth in it. And once you've done those three steps, then you're not a sundown town anymore. And there's approximately 10 to 20,000 of these towns and counties across the United States that need to take those three steps and, and you can help them do it. Well, so we need to get it right about the nadir. Every, every 21-year-old in America needs to know the nadir of race relations, why it's important, what its impact is on us today. We're still trying to fight out from under sundown towns and sundown neighborhoods in uh, our cities. I'm gonna conclude, and my conclusion is, what you do is vital, or at least it can be. Uh, museums, and there's some examples even here in this community, but museums can help revitalize communities, and not just economically, but morally as well. You can help us make us more intelligent, or you can help make us stupider about the past. You can help us cohere or become incoherent as a nation. You can help get last year's immigrant family from Somalia, say, whose father is driving a taxi, to become invested in questions like, I've heard discussed even here today, did Tommy sleep with Sally? Or who built this mission? Who actually built it? Or, what does America stand for? And by the way, I wrote that several weeks ago and just yesterday came upon a very interesting story about a Somali-American who is a successful NPS guide and has done just what I said. If you do your job well, you will bring us together 
as the multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-class community that we are, striving for justice for all, failing, but getting up off the floor and striving for justice again. That's an important mission. Uh, that gives us all something to think about. I will put in uh, yet another plug uh, to go to Jim's uh, sessions tomorrow if you want to have the opportunity to speak with him uh, in more detail or after tonight's program. Uh, clearly, I have some daddy issues, um, but I'm going to get started here. Um, 